Hello everyone, welcome to the Healing the Nations podcast. We're broadcasting from ASI. And today we have a very special guest. We have Pastor Rich, uh, can you? Sure, Constantinescu. I'm very terrible with pronunciation, That's so right. I want to apologize. And ironically, I have a podcast. And thank you so much for joining us here. Pastor Rich, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure, I am a husband and a father and I love the Lord Jesus with all my heart. I used to be a hippie, a uh, new ager, and God saved me from a uh, life of, of uh, spiritualism and addiction and gave me hope in Him and His Word. So I try to minister that truth to others in any way that I can. Uh, I'm a pastor as well as I uh, do seminars and I instruct people on discipleship matters, how to pray and how to memorize scripture, etc. So that's interesting. You were a former hippie. I am a former hippie, correct. And so you were leaning more towards a quote-unquote progressive, uh, secular, humanistic type of position. Is that correct? I was very much, uh, I was very much a world-loving, just a pleasure-seeking person. And so, um, well, your question is, was I political liberal? Yeah, it's political, social, or your worldview, was it more towards that direction? That's a hard question for me to answer um, <laughs> because I never really was uh, involved in politics. Um, I didn't understand politics, didn't care much for it. Um, and so as a, as a Christian, I've been studying it from a biblical perspective, and so I have some opinions now, but they're more biblical than they are partisan. And so... Briefly speaking, how did you come to a conclusion to accept the Bible as the rule of faith and the rule of life in your worldview? Because of the prophecies that are so clear that could not have been fabricated, the multitude of prophecies in the Bible in both uh, the Old and the New Testaments. And so not only is it written, but I've experienced God's transforming power in my life, and I've experienced the peace that He's given me, and the blessings that He's given me to share to others. And so, really, there's no other way for me um, besides believing in the Scripture. Now, as a student of Bible prophecy, and as Bible prophecy led you to the Seventh-day Adventist Church, what do you see today in current events that leads you to have further evidence of the positions of what the Bible teaches of end-time events? The Bible predicts that at the end of time that there will not be a massive attack on Christianity and the religion of God from the outside. What it predicts is rather an implosion and an attack from the inside. And so that is uh, happening today, is we see a merger between the political powers and the Christian powers. What we see in the, in the political realm is we're seeing a fusion to Christianity that does not follow what the Bible teaches, and that's a very dangerous fusion. So that's, that's a, a very recently fulfilling prophecy that has made great progress in just the, the past few years. There is a current perception today in the United States, I feel, among the general consensus of the public that 
Christians are actively involved in partisan politics. Is there a danger in that? I think, Peter, that this is the reason why Jesus was not received by his countrymen is because he was not nationalistic. The deep irony is that in the name of Jesus, we would take on a nationalism which Jesus himself did not teach. He clearly taught that the gospel was for all. And he sent his disciples to Judea, to Jerusalem first, to Judea, to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And in Revelation, we see the everlasting gospel going to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And while God has put governments in authority, he's allowed them and he sustains them with his power because we must have government. There is nothing special about one government of one nation per se. Really, the the greatest government really is the government of Christ, which he is going to establish when all these kingdoms are destroyed, according to Daniel chapter 2. So this is why Jesus was rejected. And and the irony is, is that Christians today are trying to fuse what Jesus himself refused in temporal dominion. There is growing resistance towards biblical morality in society today. We see it in the media. We see it in popular culture. And there are also threats in religious liberty from the intolerance from those that are leaning more towards the progressive realm in politics and uh, those that want to adhere to distinct principles of the Bible in their institutions. How can we as Christians change society without seeking the arm of civil government or partisan politics? I would argue, Peter, that you cannot change society with partisan politics, that it is a fruitless endeavor. To attempt to do so is to attempt to do something which is an impossibility. Jesus said when Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus did not answer that question directly. Instead, he claimed that his kingdom was not of this world. And so the only way to really affect change is to have the kingdom of God implanted in the heart through the conversion of the Holy Spirit. When we place our emphasis somewhere where it is not called for or will be effective, then we're effectively taking away our influence from that which is our present duty, which is living Christ-like lives, sharing the gospel by caring, by teaching, by healing. And if we're not doing what God has asked us to do, then we're not going to succeed in doing something that he hasn't asked us to do. In this recent tide of quote-unquote Christian nationalism, there has been an increasing hostility towards uh, Islam and other non-American traditional faiths. Um, How should we react towards Muslims and people of different religions that are outside of Christendom? Again, I point us to the example of Jesus. Jesus did not punish people because of their religion. 
He said, my kingdom is not of this world, otherwise my servants would fight. And what the Jews wanted was to subjugate all other religions except their own. That is not to say that there are no evil people within other religions. They must be dealt with according to law, but not on the basis of religion. Those are two entirely different fields and realms. So if you look at the Ten Commandments, there is a very clear delineation between the commandments regarding our obligation to God and the commandments regarding our obligation to man. And so if someone breaks a just law that violates our relationship with each other, then we need to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and we need to enforce that law, but not try to to limit people's religious freedom, however distasteful it might be to us. You recently did some presentations on end-time events at your church. Correct. Especially in Daniel chapter 11. Mm-hmm. And, and one current event issue that you presented was the issue of the United States moving their embassy to Jerusalem and how evangelical Christians think this is a fulfillment of prophecy. And you responded to that. Can you explain more about, based on your studies from Bible prophecy, of the significance of this move or the insignificance of this move? I believe that Jerusalem is very significant, but it's just as significant as Beijing. It's just as significant as Bucharest or Washington, D.C. And that is because Jesus' kingdom is yet to come. It has not come yet. In Daniel chapter 2, there is a prophecy of a great stone coming, and the stone is not cut with hands. And that represents Christ's kingdom. It says that in the days of these kings of Babylon and Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome after those nations, and then there's the divided Rome of Europe, in the days of these kings, the divided nations, that Christ will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And so that's the kingdom we're looking for. It's not the kingdom of Jerusalem on earth. It's not the kingdom of Washington, D.C. or Bucharest or Beijing. It's the kingdom of Christ. Jerusalem does not have spiritual significance now because when Jesus left the temple in Matthew 23, he said, your house is left to you desolate. At the beginning of his ministry, he said, my father's house is called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. He called it his father's house at the beginning of his ministry, at the end of his ministry, having been rejected and knowing that he was doomed to be crucified. He said, your house is left to you desolate. And then he makes those stunning predictions in the next chapter, Matthew 24, about how Jerusalem would be destroyed. The next Jerusalem that we see in the Bible is the new Jerusalem. And so, basically, focus on earthly Jerusalem is taking away the gaze of Christians from where it really matters. What is Christ doing now? Most Christians cannot answer that question. He's in the heavenly sanctuary. And he's in the heavenly city. And that is where our direction, our gaze should be focused. Now, also recently you did a sermon regarding partisan politics in the church. Correct. What compelled you to present such a hot topic? Well, as I've shared with you, I used to be quite liberal in my practice of life. And I remember when I first became a Christian, I was at a party with friends. We were smoking pot, 
taking recreational drugs, listening to party music, and suddenly I just sensed the love of God come into my heart, and I remembered the Bible prophecies, and God's Spirit spoke to me. And from that day forward, I started to take my Bible with me to parties. I would be preaching from the Bible and teaching from the Bible as we were doing our recreational activities that we thought were so important and fun. God was drawing my heart, and yet if you looked on the external, you might have judged me and said that this guy is crazy or he'll never be a pastor or a preacher or you might have come to all kinds of conclusions. It's very dangerous when we label people. We want to make sure that we discern actions, but we can never discern motives. And so when we play partisan, what we do is we label people instead of dealing with issues. And it's a fact that not everybody is right about every single thing. That there are sincere people on both sides that hold views which may or may not be correct. And so I took the example of Jesus in John chapter 3 when he was talking to the Pharisee and then when he was talking to the very liberal Samaritan woman who had been married to many men and or the man that she was married to was not her husband. And he spoke to both of them. And he gave them both the gospel. And when we condemn the other side, basically what we're doing is we're isolating people and we're not letting Jesus reach the people on both sides of the aisle. And that's concerning to me because Jesus loves everybody. There's been a growing trend based on social media of Seventh-day Adventists being openly partisan political. How do you respond to that? That is something that is worse than a distraction, in my opinion. Is it, it is very, very dangerous to do because we don't really know how governments truly operate. The Bible says in Daniel 4.17, This matters by the decree of the angels and the holy ones, to the intent that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men. And he sets up over it the basest of men. If God chooses to set up over a kingdom the basest of men, then we need to be very careful what we say about anybody in government. We may disagree with policy. We may disagree with actions as far as biblical principle is concerned. However, we should never engage in personal attacks, as it says in Jude, that Evil men speak evil of things that they do not understand. We should have hands off when it comes to criticizing ad hominem, uh, slander, uh, bearing gossip, uh, ridiculous memes, etc. That is something that is unbecoming of Christians and it's distracting us from our mission. Recently, even in national news media, Romans 13 became a significant issue of respecting the government. Our Attorney General presented the need for people to submit to the authorities of the government. What is the balance in respecting the government, but yet when you see things that are not according to the Word of God, um, how we can respectfully disagree with the government in that regard? That's a good question. My concern with that situation is not that we should not respect the government. 
I think that Romans 13 is very much in effect, as I've just said, that the book of Jude also emphasizes. But my concern lies in the government quoting scripture to sustain its position on that point. Because that balance of give unto God the things which are God's and give unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's is not clearly presented by the government when they quote scripture in order to sustain their position that the idea that can be taken by Christians is that, okay, now we have a Christian government and their version of Christianity must be followed because the Bible says that we should respect authority. But in context, Romans 13 is written to Romans mm -hmm. under Rome, and obviously the Christians were not called to submit to laws of Rome that contradicted their conscience as guided by the Word of God. In context, the very book of Romans teaches us that. There is a difference between rendering respect and authority for just laws and forcing submission to go against one's conscience. And when a government claims that power without clearly giving the caveat or the exception, then misinformation can be communicated, and that's my concern. Could it be that when the government or even the Justice Department quotes Romans 13, could it be, in a sense, the government suddenly establishing a religion, violating the First Amendment in some sort of interesting way? Again, I'd like to affirm, Peter, that Romans 13 is true. It is absolutely true. And yet, it is not in the purvey of government to use as its authority its interpretation of the Scriptures. The Scripture was given to the common person to understand. We must respect authority. The Scripture is clear that we must. And yet, it is not so because the government said so. It is so because God's word said so. And that's the difference. In Adventist history, the Adventists that came in the Middle Right Movement and many of them that formed the Seventh Adventist Church came from an abolitionist background. In 1850, we had the Compromise of 1850 where federal law stated that any runaway slave that escapes to the North must be returned to their rightful slave owner. Ellen White said in Volume 1 of the Testimonies that as an unjust law, and we should disobey that law and we should follow the words of God. How can we determine the balance between what is a just law and an unjust law? Let's look at the example of Daniel and the three Hebrew worthies of Babylon, Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So the king said, bow down and worship this image. But the Bible clearly says, the scriptures clearly say, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. You shall not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. And so where there's a conflict, as Isaiah 8.20 says, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, there's no light in them. And so it should not be followed. Don't walk where there's no light. And so the Hebrews told Nebuchadnezzar, said, they said, if it be so, if you're going to throw us into the burning fiery furnace, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image with, which thou hast set up. We know that God is able to deliver us, but if not, let it be known to you that we will not do this. 
and Daniel as well in Daniel chapter 6, when there was a law saying that he had to refrain from worshiping anyone but the king for a period of a month, he refused because it was not a just law and the determiner was God's law, the law and the testimony of the prophets. And so that's where the line is drawn. As Peter also says in the Old Testament in Acts chapter 5, verse 31, I believe, that we would obey God rather than man. And so the apostles certainly would have known if Jesus had taught that we should just blindly, slavishly obey the government over God's law and what God's word says. They would have known about it. They were his apostles. But instead, in the full power of the Holy Spirit, after Pentecost, they boldly proclaimed the word of the Lord against what the corrupt government of the day did. They didn't attack government to attack government. They simply retained their freedom of religious expression. There are elements even within our church today, based on the reaction of the political climate of this time, for a call for social justice to be involved in protest movements, uh, movements of equality, and so on and so forth. How should Adventists relate to movements of social justice and so forth? Social justice is just a term that can be interpreted many different ways. And what happens is, is the person who makes the definition gets to tell you what to do. And it needs to be an agreed upon definition. In other words, not everyone who says that their Christian is a true Christian, not everyone who advocates for social justice may in fact be arguing for social justice. It's a principle that is found in any area of religion or ordinary life that we need to be convinced in our own mind. And just because someone doesn't participate in something that someone else thinks is justice doesn't mean that they're unjust. They may be unjust, but they actually may be just. And the person who advocates for justice may be the one unjust. What we need to do is we need to go to the Bible and we need to see what the Bible says. And you know, one of the things that the Bible says is to turn the other cheek. It also says that we should stand for the oppressed. And yet, we need to define oppression according to the Bible and not what we think oppression is. So, you know, there are many ideas of what justice is, but I think ultimately our safety is going by what the Bible says. What is the biblical definition of oppression? Taking away rights that belong to an individual. And so, for example, the second table of commandments talk about our relation to fellow man. And when those are violated, then there needs to be a correction. So when something is stolen, then it should be returned. But what God has put in place is a government in order to rectify those problems. And what our responsibility is to, first of all, make sure that we're not oppressing someone and we're not stealing from them, we're not telling lies, we're not committing adultery, um, etc. Um, the second thing that we need to do is we need to be praying for those in authority. And it's very easy to rush to judgment and say, well, I think this needs to happen. Well, maybe we don't have all the story. Maybe we need to be a little more humble and we need to pray for those judges and police officers and our Supreme Court justices and Congress men and women. And that's the way, you know, the greatest victories, Peter, the Bible doesn't show Jesus 
campaigning. It doesn't show him um, engaging in political disputes. Yet when he saw suffering, he sought to relieve that suffering, but he didn't try to do it in an obnoxious way. He didn't try to do it by overthrowing or, or staging a coup or a revolution. His disciples didn't do that. Daniel didn't do that in Babylon or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if you want to create change, then what you do is you pray. That is the strongest, the strongest activity that we can engage in. That's why we're told we should pray for those in authority by Paul. In this climate of polarization, how should we as a church respond in this growing divisive age? We need to be united to Christ right now. It is very easy to become swept aside. We should not follow a multitude to do evil. And so just because everyone else is posting something, just because people are making snide comments and, and taking sides and, and throwing jabs and, and slandering, doesn't mean that that's a good thing to do, obviously. And so what, what our responsibility is, realize that this is a distraction that something great is about to happen. Satan is a master of disguise. And what he does is he disguises his movements with a flurry of activity. And I believe that we're on the, the borders of a huge false revival that we need to be prepared for by uniting with Christ. And so our response should be, first of all, am I spending time in prayer? Am I studying the Bible? Am I laying it to heart, memorizing Bible promises? Am I reading the testimony of Jesus, the inspired writings that he's given? Am I faithful to my family to have family worship and, and ministering to my spouse or my, my children or my parents? Am I living a Christian life? Because that's the power that changes the world. What are some means for Christians, particularly Seventh-day Adventist Christians, to help alleviate the sufferings of society? When Jesus sent forth his disciples and apostles, he sent them forth to preach, to teach, and to heal. The example of Jesus is the example for Christians. We are his disciples. And so we should not look at helping others as an event or an election. We look at life as ministry, as our entire lives as being disciples of Jesus Throughout our day, we should be looking for those who are downcast, who need a word of encouragement, who need sustenance, who need healing, and use our talents, use our gifts consistently throughout the day. That is a power that collectively, as Christians, we will bless the world. Amen. Pastor Rich, thank you so much for joining us in this podcast. It's a great honor to hear your insights from the Bible. It's a great honor to be with you and to share and God bless your ministry praise the Lord can you end this with a word of prayer please sure let's pray Heavenly Father Lord help us to be disciples of Jesus who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil for you were with him Lord we ask that you'd please help us to be very careful about maligning those that may be sincere in heart and may be doing or saying things that are totally wrong but perhaps we're wrong in some ways too. Lord, help us to be generous. Help us to be guided by your Holy Spirit. Forgive our sins where we've fallen short and help us to be your true disciples. In Jesus' name, amen.